What's up everybody, GenX Dividend Investor here. In this insightful video, you'll hear about some new tickers I've added to my dividend portfolio, as well as one I've completely sold out of, and two I trimmed down on, all of which increase my annual passive income by thousands of dollars a year. I'll also explain a scary thing that happened to me which was a big motivator for doing the changes I did, and I'll share some new information I've never shared before about me, so I urge you to watch this entire video. And while I absolutely love making videos for everyone in the world, I'd really appreciate if you showed your support by hitting that thumbs up button, subscribing if you haven't yet, and clicking that bell notification. Now I'll be showing you my portfolios in Fidelity in a moment, and you can use the timestamp on screen to jump to that section if you want, but I recommend you keep listening to what I'm going to tell you now about money utility and happiness, as it helps paint the picture for why I changed my portfolio. This article on Motley Fool shows a graph that depicts the amount of utility that you'd get from pulling in more income. The graph is different for each person, but everyone follows a similar curve. So on the x-axis is income, and on the y is utility. What it means is that the first few dollars you get makes a huge impact for people, i.e. it's huge utility, but there are diminishing returns as you get more income. What that means in economic terms is that the utility of each additional dollar is lower for wealthier people. Some people actually think that at some point additional dollars have negative utility. That is, it's more of a headache to manage, maintain, and otherwise deal with more money at some arbitrarily high level than it is a benefit to have it. I'm nowhere near that point, but it's an interesting theory. Most of us are probably somewhere in this portion of the curve, where more money is quite useful and valuable. Billionaire curves look something like this, where more money really doesn't mean too much, generally speaking. But then as things hit you out of left field, your curve might change, and that's actually what happened to me, and why I made this video. Now if you watched my recent video called What I Learned Living on Dividends for 3 Years, I told you about a health issue I've had for many years where I get these recurringly amnesiatic episodes and after working with a ton of specialists around the world, no one knows why. We've tried a ton of diets and meds, but nothing resolved the issues. I've always been a good eater and into working out and never was a smoker, so I've always been doing what I can to be healthy. Doctors have looked at other potential things that could be causing my issues, like maybe it's tied to migraines or TIAs, but in the end nothing ever helped and I keep having these memory episodes. And in fact, it was a recent memory episode that changed my money curves, or rather, my family's curves. What happened was that I had another memory thing, only this one lasted a lot longer than my normal ones until my memory came back. And that got me thinking that if I ever turned into a permanent mental vegetable, which is basically what happens when I'm having one, and if my wife needed to get me ongoing medical care, then our medical costs would go up a lot, and so it would be prudent to increase our dividend cash flow now while I still can. My wife is an awesome person, but is terrible with money, and even though I've left her instructions on what to do if something happens to me, she realistically would struggle to buy or sell anything in our portfolios, so me taking action now would make her life easier in the future, which would be nice because the last thing I'd want her worrying about if I wasn't around was money. Now I also want to stress that you shouldn't copy what I've done with my portfolio with your own. I mean, the reason I made a video called Why You Shouldn't Copy a YouTuber's Dividend Portfolio was to reinforce the point that each person does things to enable their own goals based on their risk tolerances and whatever influences them. And clearly, my realities are different from yours, so again, don't copy my portfolio. And finally, before jumping into my portfolios, I want to say that it's important you realize that I'm showing you my portfolio in order to motivate you to invest, not because I have some perverse need to flex over the internet. If you do feel envious, then just realize that I'd probably trade my portfolio for your health, so I encourage you to focus on being happy for what you do have, whether that's food, shelter, the ability to see, smell, whatever, as all of that is incredibly valuable. I've said that before, but I have a lot of new people who've subbed, so I feel it's important to say it again in my portfolio update videos. Anyway, I'll jump into Fidelity first to show you my accounts, and then I'll show you my tickers in my dividend spreadsheet product, and I'll share some new information I've never shared before along the way. 
Okay, here we are in Fidelity, and I took these screenshots in the last week of October, and if you see minor variances between things, it's because I sometimes do sections of the video at different times. I'll start with my taxable account, then I'll show you my wife's smaller retirement rollover IRA that I control, and finally I'll show you my retirement IRA where I did the big changes. So here's a summary view of my accounts in Fidelity, with certain things blacked out that I don't want to show you, like account numbers. So my overall dividend portfolios are worth 2.682 million US dollars right now, with 1.179 million in my IRA, 1.34 million in my taxable, and 158k in my wife's rollover IRA that I manage. And here's my taxable account that has 20 positions in it, sorted alphabetically, and it's worth 1.34 million dollars, and Fidelity estimates that it yields about $59,700 a year in annual dividend income. So you can see I hold Apple, AbbVie, BTI, Colgate Palmolive, Chevron, etc. And like I said, I'll go over the totals of each position in my spreadsheet, as it's easier to see all this. And then I'll move on to my IRA, which has 23 tickers, worth $1.79 million, and which generates about $57,700 a year in dividend income. And then here's the rollover IRA worth 158 grand, which yields 7400 bucks a year. So in total, Fidelity says I'll make $124,875 a year in dividend income, which is $172,000 a year for my Canadian friends. Okay, let's jump into my spreadsheet now where I'll explain the latest buys and sells I've done, and feel free to watch my previous videos where I explain the color highlightings I use in my spreadsheet. Now a common question I'm frequently asked is how people can get a copy of my spreadsheet for them to use, and the answer is that you can only gain access to it if you're a Patreon Aristocrat or Patreon King member of mine. My spreadsheet hits various databases as well as accesses other data over the internet, including a site I pay for that provides more real-time stock information in it, so my spreadsheet only works if you remain an upper tier Patreon supporter. But those upper tier Patreon seats are currently and frequently sold out, as each seat takes some of my real life time to support, so I limit how many seats I open. I also made a video that teaches you how to create a simplistic dividend spreadsheet of your own, though it will only have about 10% of the functionality of mine. Okay, here are the first 14 of 28 tickers I own, sorted from largest to smallest position, and the first thing that should jump out to my long term viewers is that my top two positions are now SCHD and Realty Income. I'll zoom in in a bit, but this overview page that is sorted from largest to smallest position shows that I have $2.682 million worth of dividend stocks, just like I showed you in Fidelity. My spreadsheet estimates that my annual dividend income will be $120,000 a year, which is a few grand less than what Fidelity estimates. Part of the difference between our estimates is because I dynamically update my estimate based on changing currency rates for my two international stocks, whereas Fidelity doesn't do that. And another difference is because Fidelity is looking at TTM values for ETFs, which stands for trailing 12 months values, and then uses that historical amount to predict go-forward amounts, whereas I'm using a much more conservative go-forward estimate for one of my dividend ETFs. You can also see that my portfolio's average weighted dividend yield is 4.47%, and my portfolio's average weighted 3-year dividend CAGR is 6.11%. Okay, zooming into things, let's talk about some of the changes, like how did SCHD become my largest position? Well, I used to only hold SCHD in my taxable account, but now I also bought a bunch of it in my IRA, and to fund it I sold out of the Apple and Microsoft positions that were in my IRA, though I still have around 200 grand total of Apple and Microsoft in my taxable account. I love both Apple and Microsoft, and I kept them in my portfolio primarily for their growth potential rather than their super low dividend yield. And my plan was that if I ever got some dividend cuts, or if I ever needed more income, like I do now, then I'd sell some or all of them. Another reason I sold out of some of my Apple position was because it irked me in the last few years how they started deprioritizing their dividend more than they did historically. Like if we look at their historical dividend increases, we can see multiple years where they did 10% and 15% dividend hikes, but then from 2019 on, it has only been 4-7% hikes, and they instead ratcheted up their buybacks. 
I actually like buybacks as they're often great for price appreciation and they let me own more of a company without me buying more shares and doing a buyback makes the dividend more sustainable and makes it easier for them to do a hike. But I wasn't very happy with what Apple was doing from a dividend perspective, especially given its low yield. Another concern I was having lately was that Apple and Microsoft were getting to be large positions in my portfolio and while I was letting my winners run, I came to a point where I needed more passive income rather than portfolio growth. So moving some of those positions into things like SCHD and others would both alleviate my concern about their size as well as increase my income. Now it was a minor concern of mine, but it's still a concern. To be clear, this wasn't a bet against Apple and Microsoft I made, it was merely a move towards something that would be more aligned to my family's needs given my realities. My hope is still that Apple will come out with an amazing EV car in a few years and the stock will go up tenfold. Will that realistically happen? I don't know. And I think Microsoft is making all the right moves with AI and its recent Activision move, so hopefully it'll keep shooting up as well. But I do calculate that Microsoft is way overpriced right now, even though it has a super bright future, and the reality is that stocks can stay overpriced or underpriced for many, many years. I feel Apple is reasonably priced, so not cheap nor expensive, at least based on my estimates. So I do believe that Apple and Microsoft will continue to outperform the market over the long run, something that I'm confident SCHD won't do. But I think SCHD will deliver much more passive income for me and my family over the next two decades, and that, combined with other reasons, makes it compelling to me. Anyway, if I wanted even more income, then I could sell completely out of Microsoft and Apple that I still have in my taxable, but I've not done that yet, and please leave me a comment with your thoughts. But before you leave a comment, watch this whole video, as there's more info I'll be sharing that may change your answer. Now if I wasn't in retirement using dividends to pay our bills, then I'd not sell either of those tickers, as I still believe in them long term. My kids own Apple and Microsoft in their small portfolios, so I guess I technically own a bit more than I'm showing you here, but my point is that each person has their own needs. My kids also own companies like Amazon and Google and Tesla because I figure they'll offer more growth over the long run. So I only own dividend stocks in my portfolio while in retirement, and they own good dividend stocks and non-dividend stocks in their accounts. The reality is that I don't care as much about growth given where I'm at in life. And frankly, my portfolio could fall 50% or whatever, and it really wouldn't impact me that much, as long as the income kept coming in, because I'd bet the fall would be temporary, and as long as I don't need to sell, then it's immaterial. Don't get me wrong, I want some growth. I'm just saying it's not as important for me personally as it was when I wasn't retired. Okay, and beyond adding to SCHD and Realty Income, I also started two new positions in my IRA that I'll elaborate on in a moment. Note, I did a video you can watch all about SCHD, and the TLDR is that it's one of my favorite dividend ETFs out there, not because it's perfect, but because it's good for my goals. What I mean is that dividend ETFs will tend to do better in times of lower interest rates, and they'll often do worse during times of higher interest rates, which makes intuitive sense that dividend stocks will be less popular when the rates on treasuries and money markets and such go up, providing competitive pressure to dividend stocks. That's also why utility stocks tend to do worse when rates are higher, and better when rates stay low. And that reminds me of a common question I frequently get, which is this one I got a few hours ago from 4JohnnyBravo who asked, Why not just put $2 million in any number of numerous FDIC-insured 5% high-yield savings accounts out there? Or into a $2 million CD at a bank that pays 5% and that is also FDIC-insured and has zero risk? So that's a great question and there are a variety of reasons why. One reason is that if I sold all my stocks in my taxable account, then I'd owe hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxes that came from price appreciation. Another reason is that the U.S. stock market has given an annualized return of around 10% per year on average over the last 50 years. Some years it can be negative, some years it goes sideways, but overall it averages about 10% a year. Cash and bank savings accounts, more in CDs, more in money markets, or etc., has historically massively underperformed the market, often just kind of moving along with inflation. Oh, and a quick note, nothing is zero risk in investing, even holding government treasuries. 
Anyways, another reason I don't sell and move into CDs because rates are good right now is because timing the market like that is tough to do consistently right. Like if I sold, paid the taxes, and then put money into CDs, then when would I get back in the market? Interest rates have fallen from the 9% high down to 3.7% right now. It only took 12 months to go from 9 to 3. And savings account and CDs are 4 or 5%. So should I start rebuying into my stocks now and hopefully get that 10% annualized return? Or do I hold off since last month inflation went up a bit? The reality is that actively jumping in and out of your portfolio is hard to do consistently correctly, and I prefer more passive investing and just collecting my dividends, with some portfolio changes now and then when it makes sense. That being said, if I had never invested and I was sitting all in cash right now, then I'd be more comfortable with a 5% savings account, but if it was my kids asking me what they should do, I'd still tell them to invest in the market and keep investing, whether interest rates are 2% or 8%. Maybe you DCA more than lump sum when rates are super high, but you get my drift. I believe that continually dollar cost averaging into the market will outperform the majority of people in the world. But you'll have to have the fortitude to not sell when markets go sideways for 10 or 20 years. If you can't stomach that, then I recommend you learn how to control your stomach. It takes risk to get reward, and the people who are too scared to ever invest will most likely regret not investing over their lives. Okay, back to SCHD. If we look at the top stocks in SCHD, I tend to like most of them. Here we see that Amgen is its number one holding at 4.69% of SCHD, then Chevron, AbbVie, etc. SCHD is algorithmically generated, which means that a human isn't picking the stocks that are in the ETF. So there are some stocks I don't like that are in SCHD, but overall I still feel it's the best dividend ETF for my needs. Part of the reason I want a larger position in SCHD is because it will be easier on my future generations if my dividend assets generate cash flow for them without them having to stay on top of each company's stock I own. I also like the fact that SCHD gives me a bunch of US companies, reducing some of the risk of single stocks I hold. But one downside to SCHD is that there will be times that its dividend payout will fluctuate down, unlike companies like Microsoft where I'd bet it would just continue to go up. Those are some of the trade-offs of getting a dividend ETF, and you need to be aware of what likely can happen. Anyway, one nice thing is that since I did these changes in my retirement account, then there aren't any tax implications for doing so. Okay, and if you're a long-time viewer, then you'd know that I once sold out of all my stocks, and then slowly got back into them again once I was past a risky medical procedure. Most of the stocks I bought back into I already had, but some were net new. Apple was actually one of the new ones. Interestingly, I never directly owned Apple, even though I fell in love with my favorite uncle's Apple II computer when I was in elementary school. In fact, it was because of him and his Apple II games that I became an avid video gamer my entire life, as well as why I got my degree in computer science and then became a programmer. But when I started investing when I graduated from college, I didn't think Apple was a great investment, and it wasn't until a few years after the iPhone came out that I got interested in Apple as a stock, but I made the mistake of not getting in right away. Fortunately, in late 2018, I finally decided I'd correct that mistake, as Apple was at a good price and I could use the money I originally had in Clorox but hadn't rebought to lump some into Apple. It wasn't that I didn't like Clorox anymore, it was just that I felt that Apple was a better move given where my portfolio was and where I wanted it to go. So I started my Apple position with a 68 grand buy total across my taxable and retirement accounts that otherwise would have probably gone back into Clorox. And for reference, here's my Apple position in my IRA account before I sold it recently. And remember, I also have some Apple in my taxable account, which I got at around the same price. So in just five years, I'm up around 350% on my original Apple buy versus the market, which is up 66% in that same time. And you can see that my average buy price on Apple was around 38 bucks a share. My other dividend stocks originally had much lower buy prices until I completely sold out and bought back in. Anyway, now I have about 184 grand of SCHD, which generates almost 7 grand a year in dividends. Next up is another stock I added to, which is Realty Income, as I felt the price was quite compelling. 
I have about 177 grand of O, yielding about $910 a month in dividends, which is about 11 grand a year. It'd be fun to slowly take that up to 12 grand a year, so I'd be doing 1 grand a month from O. Part of the reason why O's stock price has been pushed down so much is due to concerns with rising interest rates, so you gotta figure out if it's too risky for you or not. To me, O is a bit ETF-like in the sense that it has over 13,000 long-term commercial properties under lease, spanning 85 industries, and it's at an astounding 99% occupancy. Their customers are located in North America, Spain, Italy, and the UK, and they lease out some very recognizable names like Walmart, Kroger, Costco, FedEx, Lowe's, and 7-Eleven, to name some of them. O's management team recently proved their savvy again when they spun out their office space commercial leases over two years ago, avoiding the office space again that other REITs are dealing with right now. Okay, now I'll move a bit quicker over my remaining tickers. After O, I have 161 grand of Altria, yielding 14,800 bucks a year, then 146 grand of J&J, yielding 4,600 bucks a year, then 136 grand of AbbVie, yielding 5,500 bucks a year, 131 grand of EPD, yielding 9,500 bucks a year, 130 grand of ExxonMobil, yielding 4,300 bucks a year, 124 grand of Pepsi, yielding 3,800 bucks a year, then my remaining Microsoft position worth 123 grand, yielding 1,100 bucks a year. Then we come to two net new positions I added, each at 120 grand, and those are JetQ and Devo. I recommend you watch my video called SCHD vs. Jeppy vs. Devo vs. VTI Who Wins to get my thoughts on why I like Devo so much, as well as how I came to understand and appreciate Jeppy more. JetQ is pretty much like Jeppy, only it's focused on the NASDAQ, which tends to be more about growth and innovation than other sectors, so it gives me more tech exposure to help compensate for the tech I partially sold out of, and both Devo and JetQ are my ways of outsourcing someone else doing options to gas my income. These are reasonably sized positions, each one being about 4.5% of my portfolio, or about 9% overall, which really isn't that much, but I feel it's enough to gas my income some, along with SCHD and O. And again, all investments have their pros, cons, risks, and issues, so never invest without digging to make sure you understand things. Now, related to Devo and JepQ is another common question I sometimes get, which is if I do options on my portfolio, and the answer is I used to, but I no longer do. My reality is that at any second of the day, 24 by 7, I can go into an almost dementia-like state, as I talked about in my three-year video I just did. When these memory issues happen, I don't remember things, like I couldn't even tell you what stocks I own. I probably wouldn't even remember that Fidelity is where I hold my stocks, and regardless I wouldn't remember how to use my multi-factor authentication even to log in, and I wouldn't remember the difference between a covered call versus a cash-secured put. I sometimes don't even remember keystrokes I've done millions of times over during my blackouts. Since my mind issues started happening, I stopped driving, as that presented too much risk to myself and to others, which is why I started using Ubers and public buses and such. Fortunately, I know who I am when I have them, and even if I don't know where I am, I remember to use GPS for some reason. That being said, I've actually been able to hide my memory disability from multiple jobs, so you'd never guess I had anything wrong with me, unless you were with me when I was having an episode, and you talked to me and I couldn't get out of the conversation quickly. Those are the basics of my fun maladies, so I'll just leave it by saying I try to avoid touching my portfolio as much as possible, and if I do touch it then it needs to be very rarely and minimally. If doing anything means it could remain in whatever state it happens to be in when I black out, meaning that if it's not in an ideal state for my wife and kids then it might remain that way forever. Or even worse than that, I could accidentally do something I didn't mean to do if I was having a brain issue at that inopportune time. So the less I touch fidelity, the better. It's way less stressful and more prudent for me to simply be a buy and hold passive dividend investor rather than do anything else, and the risk of harm being caused materially increases the more I touch my portfolio, thus I'm happy to sacrifice some premium and such in exchange for keeping my portfolio as I need it to be. And again, I'm only telling you part of all that I have to give you a flavor of things, but that's the high level reason why I used to do options but no longer do. However, I do recommend you learn about options, and then if you decide to try them then limp into them carefully and stay small. 
Options are a game of probabilities and risk versus reward. If you're smart and careful, then you can help out your portfolio and cash flow and such with relatively low risk. However, if you get too aggressive, well, then unfavorable outcomes can happen. Lots of people do well with options in the world, but lots of people do poorly. Just realize there are never any guarantees when it comes to investing, and be careful with everything you do. I'm grateful that I can generate enough passive income with my dividend portfolio as is, and that I can spend time doing whatever I want, whether that's hanging out with the family, or doing stuff I enjoy like social media, or playing video games. Time is a precious asset, and I'd way rather be playing Baldur's Gate 3 rather than playing with my portfolio. But again, each person is different, and what floats your boat may be different than what floats mine, and what sinks your boat is different than what sinks mine. Like I love making YouTube videos, whereas some creators tell me they feel like it's a chore to them. I don't do it because I need the money, but instead I do it because it gives me an incredible sense of fulfillment helping educate others, and it's fun showing my kids how to grow a business online from scratch. So sure, I do enjoy extra money coming in from it, but I'm not doing it to pay the bills. And when I'm gone, my social media income will trend down, so me doing anything active isn't something that will help my family when I'm gone, so it's just a fun hobby for me. Anyway, another reason I wanted to start driving more yield from my IRA is because if I generate enough retirement income then I can avoid or minimize having to sell stocks once I'm forced to do RMDs, so Devo and JepQ can help that out a lot, with a relatively small investment. And holding them in a retirement account avoids the issue of them not always paying qualified dividends. And you need to be aware of how those ETFs tend to perform over time, which is part of the reason why I don't get too large with them. Anyway, speaking of JEPQ, one reason why Fidelity's annual dividend income estimate is higher than mine is because they're looking at recent history for JEPQ and using it to estimate its go-forward payout, and in my spreadsheet I'm lowering the estimate down to 8%, which is more in line with what the managers predict they'll do on average. Okay, let's continue on. Next, I have 115 grand of Procter & Gamble, generating about 2,900 bucks a year. Then 105 grand of McDonald's, generating 2,700 bucks a year. And 94 grand of Duke Energy, yielding 4,400 bucks a year. Okay, and then here's my final page of tickers. We see 93 grand of Coke yielding 3 grand a year, 84 grand of BTI yielding 7,900 bucks a year, 79 grand of Chevron yielding 3 grand a year. And speaking of Chevron, I just tweeted a press release they did about how they're acquiring Hess for 53 billion, which should increase their cash flow, and they said they plan to increase their dividend by 8% in January, so I guess oil isn't quite dead yet. Moving on, we see that I have 74 grand of Southern Company yielding 3,100 bucks a year. Then we see my remaining Apple position worth 71 grand, but yielding only 391 bucks a year. Then 67 grand of Kimberly Clark, yielding 2,600 bucks a year. 60 grand of Philip Morris, yielding 3,400 bucks a year. 53 grand of Goldman Sachs, yielding 1,950 a year. 51 grand of Caterpillar, yielding a grand a year. Then smaller positions in Colgate Palmolive, Toronto Dominion Bank, Starbucks, Home Depot, and Travelers. Thus, I also sold out of my Pfizer position, put it into SCHD and O and the others. Pfizer is only about 0.5% of my portfolio, and while I think it's a solid steady eddy company, I don't see it having decent long-term growth potential, and with it being such a small position, I figured I'd simplify things and consolidate it away. Now another benefit I got from making these changes was lowering my portfolio's average weighted beta, which is down to 0.58 now. Okay, and here's a calendar view of dividend payouts in my spreadsheet tool, where each column represents a new month of dividend payouts from my tickers. The left columns are historical dividend payouts that already happened, and the right columns are future payouts I should get. The current month is highlighted in the middle green column. On the bottom are the total dividend payouts for each month. What you'll see is that going forward, my monthly dividend payouts should be about $9,500 in November, $12,400 in December, and $8,000 in January. And then those three amounts keep repeating each quarter, i.e. $9,500, $12,400, $8,000, averaging out to $10,000 a month. The reason this total says 109,990 instead of 120 grand is because it's adding 6 months of historicals with 6 months of futures instead of 12 months of futures. Okay, and then this section is my drip no drip dividend income estimates year over year. 
I've turned off my drips, so I should look at the no drip line for a better estimate of how my income will trend. But I do plan to reinvest maybe 20% of SCHD, O, Devo, and JEPQ back into themselves. So I'll probably be somewhere in between, between the no drip row and the drip row. And at year one, it properly shows that I'm at 120 grand of income, and it estimates by year 10 my portfolios would be yielding 217 grand a year without reinvesting. Awesome. If we go further out, where estimates get less and less likely to be accurate, we see that by year 30 this estimates my no-drip portfolio would be yielding 710 grand a year, or 1.9 million had I been dripping. I've also added the ability to adjust these estimates by inflation percentage to see what your buying power equivalency would be, but I'll leave that alone for now. Going back to this screenshot, you can see a chart in the middle bottom that shows my monthly dividend income is 10 grand a month, which is 2300 bucks a week, 328 bucks a day, or $13.70 an hour, every hour, year round. The hourly wage number is higher than the 24 by 7 hourly number because it assumes things like you work 5 days a week instead of 7, that you take some vacations where you wouldn't be making any money, that you have all qualified dividends, etc. So it's really just a fun estimate. Okay, and here's my passive income by sector chart, and it has ETFs at about 11% of my portfolio, real estate at 9%, sin stocks at 22%, healthcare at 8%, energy at 14%, consumer staples at almost 12%, tech at 9%, consumer discretionary at 3.6%, Utilities at 6%, financials at 4%, and industrials at only 1%, which is something I'll eventually want to increase. So another reason I did these changes was to push down my SIN stock's contribution to my overall income, which is still high. I mean, I could have made more income if I had moved more heavily into my SIN stocks, but that felt too risky for me. And then here's my passive income by ticker. So Altria is 12%, O is 9%, EPD is 8%, JEPQ is 8%, SCHD is about 6%, BTI is 6%, Devo is 5%, AbbVie is 4.6%, etc. And that finishes up my portfolio review, and now I'll quickly update you on my background. I've been investing for about 30 years now, and I started once I got my first job as a programmer. My portfolio started at zero US dollars, and I've never received an inheritance or won the lottery or gotten a dime handed to me. Every dollar of contribution came from a dollar I earned, and the majority of my portfolio came from compounding over time. You saw that I have over a million dollars of dividend stocks in my retirement accounts, which came from slow and steady contributions over 30-ish years. The takeaway learning is that investing for a long time really does wonders for your net worth. Like, take a look at this portfolio growth simulator tool that I built in my dividend spreadsheet product. So let's say we start with someone with no portfolio, but they start investing $100 a week into it, which is $430 a month since there are 4.3 weeks per month on average. And we say that share prices go up 7% a year, along with you're investing in something that has a 2.5% yield and a 7.5% dividend CAGR. Then let's see how a portfolio could grow. At your tenure, portfolio would be 73 grand, and some of you might think that's crappy and some of you might think it's not. Sometimes you'll have big up years, and sometimes you'll have big down years, but after 10 years of constant investment, you're at 73 grand. Many people never start investing, and those that do often will cash out. But I didn't quit investing, even when most around me quit. At year 20, this person would be at 275 grand, which is nice. But how many people would keep investing at that slow and steady pace? Anyways, at year 32, this person's portfolio gets to over a million, and that scenario pretty much explains how my retirement account grew to a little over a million over three decades. When I'd leave jobs, I'd roll my 401k into a self-directed IRA, and then I'd rinse and repeat that process over the years. The key point is that small investments over a long period of time really add up. If you feel like you can't do it, then you won't. But if you try, then you'll be on a better financial path. And it doesn't matter if you can't build your portfolio to a million bucks, it just matters that you push for a better path. It doesn't matter if you're 50 and you've never invested. It doesn't matter if you can only contribute 10 bucks every other month. What matters is that you invest what you can for as long as you can. My taxable account was also built up to over a million with slow and steady investments, 
coupled with bigger lump sums whenever I came into them. Like whenever I sold my house I was living in, I'd set aside 20% for my next house and I'd invest the rest, usually in my taxable. And don't get discouraged when things go south. When life hits you a curveball that knocks you down, you've got to dust yourself off and keep moving forward. I've been fired before and have been worried about how I'd make money for my family, and I've never felt like I had a security blanket of someone who could save me if things went south. I've struggled to find jobs sometimes. I've dealt with health issues impacting my ability to even stay employed, and that's life. But I'm still very lucky. I don't have cancer, nor does anyone in my family. We don't worry about food or shelter, like so many in the world unfortunately do. So be truly grateful for what you have, invest non-stupidly, live reasonably frugally, and I'm highly confident that you'll do well over the long run. When the market crashes, and it will crash, then know that you're buying stocks cheaper and be happy, rather than be freaked out that your portfolio is smaller. I saw my friends quit investing after the dot-com crash. I saw other friends quit investing after the 2008 financial crash. I saw one of my best friends quit investing after the pandemic crash and is still sitting on the sidelines. Most people make the mistake of putting off investing because retirement seems so far in the future. And with that, I'd normally end things by telling you who my latest new Patreon aristocrats and king signups are, but I'm still all sold out. So instead, I'll take a moment to recognize my all-star Patreons with a shout-out, i.e. those supporters that sign up or have been signed up for a year or more, and that continue to stay on board. First, I'll show you my longtime kings, which are my highest tier of Patreon supporters. Then I'll show you my longtime aristocrats. And finally, I'll show you my all-star Patreon champions. Thanks, folks. I really appreciate your long-term support. I'd also like to thank Seeking Alpha, who sponsors me. I paid for the premium membership for years because I value their articles and associated comments so much, and these days I'd literally never buy or sell a stock without first reviewing what Seeking Alpha had on it. So I recommend you sign up to them using my affiliate link in the description of this video, as using it often comes with benefits for new member signups. And I highly recommend you join my free Dividend Discord chat server, which has over 11,000 dividend investors on it from 76 countries around the world. Finally, I recommend you follow me at GenXDividend on X, as I post useful dividend information on there all the time. Whatever you do, please hit that thumbs up button, subscribe if you haven't yet, and click that bell notification. Thanks for watching, stay positive, and I'll talk to you again real soon. Remember, I'm not a financial advisor, and my videos are for entertainment and inspirational purposes only. Investing of any kind involves risk. I'm only sharing my opinions with no guarantee of gains or losses on investments.